It's Guys Guy Radio. Here's your host, Robert Manny. Welcome to Guys Guys Radio. This is your host, Robert Manny, welcoming you to the show where men and women can be at their best. Guys Guys Radio. We're here to bring you guests that tell us about their journeys, their stories, their adventures, and what they've learned to really help all of us by informing us, inspiring us, empowering us to think, to feel, to act to look past that fence in the backyard to say, what else is out there? And this is a good time to really pick up new information because things have slowed down a little bit, of course, with the uh, pandemic that we're still navigating our way through. And it's a perfect time to look inside and say, okay, who am I? What am I? How do I serve? What can I use this time for? Chaos, in my opinion, creates opportunity. I know it's a, it's a, uh, intense time in a lot of ways. And, uh, but it's a time also that you can use to your advantage. One thing I would suggest is uh, be careful with your consumption of media and social media because I've noticed now you, know, you get on Facebook and listen, Facebook for the most part is free. You can be in touch with friends you haven't seen in 20, 30 years. It can be a lot of fun, as can Instagram. But what I, And Facebook, I believe, owns both companies. But What's happened is it seems like you get on Facebook and it's it's really uh, people arguing all the time. And it's it's too bad that it's come to that, that this country and this world, it's so divided and everything is politicized. I'm not going to get into all of that. And we know that through the pandemic, what's been going on. But just uh, one of the things that I would suggest that I've made sure that I've done is I curtail my time with traditional media and also social media and also alternative media because it's just too much information, too many opinions. And what you have to do is, number one, you've got to take care of yourself. You've got to eat the right diet. You've got to think the right thoughts. You've got to get rest. You've got to hydrate yourself. You've got to get outdoors. And you've got to bring your mask along, people. you just got to do it. So anyhow, Guys Guys Radio, we've got a great show today. Have you ever thought about what it would take to break through in Hollywood as a screenwriter. It ain't easy because you've got to have the talent, you've got to have some breaks, and you've got to know how to navigate what is a system. And we've got the perfect guest for you today. His name is Alec Sokolow, and he is an Academy Award-nominated screenwriter of Toy Story, the original Toy Story, and so many other great films. And he's going to be here, and we're going to talk about storytelling and story mythology. We're going to talk about the, the actual movie story, Toy Story, um, what it's like writing for Hollywood. Um, he also does a lot of work. He has his own podcast. He's done some work uh, in, uh, on the sex trafficking issue that's so prevalent that people really don't know too much about. And he's a really interesting guy. So I think you're going to really enjoy our conversation. So Alec Sokolow is going to join us today on Guys Guys Radio. Um, in terms of what's going on, I hope you're enjoying your summer right now. It's hot out there, it's sunny, and you got a mask you got to tow around with you. That's just the way it is right now. We never thought it would come to that, but here we are. So be safe, be respectful, and consider that other people are going through a journey also. So just be kind. So Guys Guys Radio, our special guest, screenwriter extraordinaire, Alec Sokolow. It's Guys Guy Radio. 
As I mentioned, I have a very special guest today on Guys Guys Radio. He is a creative force in Hollywood. His name is Alec Sokolow, and he is very distinguished in his work. He went from late-night comedy to children's books, documentaries, teaching creative writing at Penn, but really what you know him for is Toy Story number one, the Academy Award-nominated screenplay. Uh, He's written Cheaper by the Dozen, Garfield, Evan Almighty, Daddy Day Camp, uh, also got into video games with Activision, um, so much more, and has done some documentary work on some serious subjects like uh, sex trafficking, and he did a, a, a film called Shooting an Elephant based on a George Orwell short story. Uh, He's really a master at storytelling, and I'm thrilled to have him on Guys Guys Radio. So welcome to Guys Guys Radio, Alec Sokolow. Oh, thank you, man. Thanks for having me on. I loved reading about your background. So let's just start at the beginning. What made you want to pursue a career in screenwriting, and why primarily screenwriting and not being a novelist or a nonfiction writer? Because obviously... Um, In one of the interviews I read, it said, you know, writing, and this is my point of view also, writing isn't something you want to do. It has to be something you have to do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, I used to joke that, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm from the Upper West Side of Manhattan originally, and uh, that's where I was born and raised. And, and I'm like, I'm I'm a Jewish guy from the Upper West Side of Manhattan. So I really only had two life choices. I could join the (laughs) Communist Party, or I could join the (laughs) right. (laughs) <laughs> like those were like it, right? Um, you know what? Um, I think that it's it's a good question because I don't know exactly when, but somewhere in my childhood and in my formative years, I had a connection to the movies I watched. I wanted to live on the screen. I I, I can remember where I was, who I was with when I would watch a movie. The movies just lived inside of me in some way. And even though I grew up in, in New York City. Uh, and, and enjoyed reading novels. Uh, I never ached to write novels. I never ached to write uh, books. I, I, I ached to live in the magical world of cinema, not knowing anything about the realities of the industry. It, it, you know, even though in my home, uh, my, uh, my mom uh, had, had this wonderful career and still has it, where, where she was running Warner Brothers Lit Department uh, on the East Coast. And my dad uh, had a career in publishing and in counterculture publishing and in art publishing, and then ultimately also in media. So kind of grew up in and around, uh, the industry where the dinner table conversation was, was industry conversation, but the exposure I also got at a young age were to the people who were making product, making movies, making, writing books also, but making, making movies, making TV, writing plays, and over that period of time, uh, you know, just fall in love with, fall in love with movies. I, I mean, I could tell you a story. This is a true story, and this is to me what movies are, probably better than anything that that I could say otherwise. And that is, you know, uh, really one of the first movies I remember going to is my, my mom's mom, who I called Nanny. Uh, so my nanny. Uh, took me to the Zigfield Theater on 54th Street and 6th Avenue uh, when I was about four or five years old to see uh, Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times. And that was when the Zigfield was really kind of a rundown uh, kind of, you know, art house or or was showing kind of older movies. Um, But I can remember going into the theater. I can remember going with her. It was a special, uh, you know, date with my grandmother. 
you know, you walk in, you go up the big staircase, you go and you sit down and, and we watch modern times. And, you know, to me, it was the funniest thing I had ever seen at the time. It ends and my grandma says to me, you laughed in all the right places, and which I thought was like the greatest compliment I could ever get. And I mention that because, you know, years later, I move out to LA to begin my writing career. I'm writing late night television. My grandma had gotten into her upper 80s. She had kind of become senile and was kind of living in an assisted living home in North Carolina. And um, her last, we hadn't had a, like a substantive conversation in about two or three years because she was really not quite all there. But her last uh, year that she was alive, that was my birthday, um, I, get an, I get a present from her. Uh, it's, a, it's a poster of modern times. And that to me is what movies are. It's like it connected us, it connected us through both of our lives. It was a memory, it was a collective memory. And so to me, movies, it, it was never a question about wanting to do anything else. It was just about figuring out how to do it. You've worked on myriad types of projects um, and different vehicles. Is there a particular arena or form that you prefer to work in? You've done film, animation, video games, documentaries, comedy, late night TV, as you mentioned. So do you have a preference? I mean, you can do it all. What do you gravitate towards? Yeah, um, I, I tend to think in long form. I tend to think in in, in movie form writing. Um, but uh, that, you know, the, the logistics and the realities of that industry uh, become harder and harder as you go on uh, in a career because you understand, uh, you know, earlier on in the process what the chances are of getting any of your work actually produced. And, and it's just a very hard, uh, you know, field to navigate any project. And so um, I, I like writing screenplays. Uh, but to me, I'm, I'm, I think the addiction really is more in storytelling and more in characters and more in like exploring people and, and exploring emotions. And if I can do that successfully in, in any platform, then, then I can get really turned on. And, um, I know that, uh, in the case of video games, it was a completely different thing when I was helping Activision out, uh, with the Skylander franchise. And it, it and yet, e even though the narrative structures are different and even though, you know, the, uh, the, the engine driving the, the experience is different, it was still storytelling. And so that to me is really like the, um, the addiction, um, you know, and, but to be honest, uh, I, I always think there's two kind of writers. There's working writers and non-working writers, and I really like being a working writer. So, <laughs> how did you learn storytelling? I mean, to me, there's you know, the McKee. I took the McKee course, and then I took his uh, love story course, and it was fantastic. I read his book. I took 35 pages of notes when I took the seminar in in Manhattan. Yeah. And then there's uh, Joseph Campbell and the power of myth and the hero's journey and all of that. And and then how did you? Uh, what what was your kind of foundation for learning and embracing the craft of storytelling. Yeah, well, I, I think writing and, and I I will tell this to anybody and, and I don't think I don't think that I'm unique in any way. I think that you learn by doing. You learn you, writers write. Writers you learn by writing. And so I think when when I started out and I didn't really I didn't write my first screenplay until I was in my early twenties and it took about a year and a half. 
And when I was done with it, I thought, well, I had done it and uh, then didn't write another one for about a year because I didn't realize what I was doing. And, and I think over time, you learn by doing. You learn by you know, a gazillion mistakes and, and going down corridors you think are right on a Monday, then on a Tuesday you realize we're wrong. Um, and then along the way, I think for me, as, as the appetite got wet and as the passion gets ignited, uh, you, I, I, you become a student of it and you start saying, well, what are the precedents and, and where, where did this idea or this, this uh, device really come from? And so you have the entire history of movies that even before YouTube or before any of the um, streaming services were, were pretty available. And so, you know, you watch a million movies. I, I did take the McKee course when I was a kid. Um, I, I got the personality where I was kind of poking at, at it and poking at him a little bit where I was just like, who is this guy? And, you know, what's this all about? And, and yet, uh, you know, he was just trying to teach the rudiments of storytelling. Um, so I think anything that makes you more mindful is good. I, I'm a big Joseph Campbell guy. I would recommend to anybody that is not just in writing, but in life is to really, you know, read his work and, and, and read about the hero's journey. He kind of sums up some core aspect of, of, of the human condition, I think. Um, and, and I thought, what was it, guy? Sid uh, Fields, I think, had a book. Yeah, right, right on screenwriting. Yep. Yeah, like when, when I was a kid and you're starting out you know, it's, you're writing to form. And so, and screen, screenwriting is kind of a bit of an oxymoron or a bit of a paradox because, you know, if you're successful, if you're really successful as a screenwriter, you may, you may have like a hundred people actually read your screenplay, maybe 200 people, but you may have millions of people experience your thoughts and experience the structure that you're creating. And, and so to me, it's all about structure and it's all about the, the kind of creation of something that will stand through a very collaborative process and will outlive you. And to get there, uh, you know, I found I needed to study the human condition. I needed to study myself and I needed to apply myself into every story, even if it was about two toys or it was about a talking cat. I didn't know when I was a kid that I would be doing family stuff. I didn't start my career. I wasn't an animation guy as a kid. I wasn't a, um, a video game player as a kid. I, I, but then it turns out that somehow my sensibilities and the stories I like to tell uh, somehow found their way there. And when that happens, then you realize, okay, well, I'm telling, I'm, I'm using that as the platform. But it, but again, like it's, it's really, um, you learn by doing. And Got it. I, th I think Norman Mailer once said that when he was in his twenties, he was writing a thousand words a day because he wanted to get all the bad writing out of the way. And, <laughs> I and I know, yeah, right. And so. I kind of think that's the thing, you, you know, you write Kill every your day, darlings. well, but also you write every day and over a period of time, you know, like for me, like my twenties were really horrible as far as, um, success, you know, but I learned how to be a writer. And so when the door opened up after toy story, uh, I at least knew what I was doing, <laughs> you know? So, so you, you, that's, and, but I, I woke up every day and I did it then. So, uh, you know, you just stumble around, you fake it till you make it.
Guys Guys Radio, your host, Robert Manny, special guest, Academy Award nominee and Annie Award winner for Outstanding Achievement in Writing, Alec Sokolow is our special guest on Guys Guys Radio. I want to get into uh, Toy Story in a moment because it's such part of our culture now. But let me uh, just a little bit more on storytelling. Do you have these uh, aspects down to muscle memory or do you not necessarily take them into consideration? Let me throw some of the things at you. Um, uh, what does the main character want and why can't he get it? Do you have that in every scene? Do you have an inciting incident in uh, in your story storytelling template? Um, do you build a series of escalating challenges until the climax? And do you give the audience the ending they want, but not the ending uh, they expect? I, yeah, I think the answer is, is yes. If you're doing popular culture writing, uh, you always want to give the audience something. Want them always wanting a little bit more. You know, there was another guy, I, I was a big Billy Wilder guy, and, uh, you know, not only loved his movies, but you know, read uh, his interviews and he had like a 10 commandments of writing. Uh, you could find it on online pretty easily. And, and it's that kind of stuff. It's like, so McKee would talk about inciting incident, uh, you know, and, and there might be other vernacular, but yeah, I think that stories by and large, uh, I don't, I do not, uh, use three by five cards and I really don't like to front load the creative process. It's one of the reasons why, I haven't been drawn to working in television as much, even though it's it's a far more lucrative side of the business, is I find the whole process is very front loaded. And for me, I get very claustrophobic and I kind of don't uh, think I get my best work done by and large. Uh, I like the discovery of writing, but I do know that there's an internal gimbal kind of at work at all times. And if I'm kind of in, in the first 10 or 15 pages, I'm introducing the world. I'm introducing the characters. I'm introducing the themes right before change is going to happen, and right before they're going to be sent out on a journey in some way. Uh, that that's the inciting incident. And then once that journey begins, it's kind of a new sequence of the storytelling. Um, you know, you have to build a crescendo with with setbacks, with hurdles, with surprises. Uh, every you know, every uh, eight to 12 or 15 pages. And that's just part, part of the, the structure and the form in screenwriting. So uh, I think I hit all of those things, including the, what, you know, what do they call it? Like the, the, the page 50 reversal or whatever. Like it's, they, you have all of these things to, to be used as roadmaps. Uh, but I, I tend to start with, I want to know I have a beginning. I want to know I have an end of a first act. I want to know I have an end and I want to know I have at least one or two what I would call set pieces, what uh, studio executives would call trailer moments, but things in the second act to aspire to. And then I want to get it all out of the way so I can just tell the story from the character's needs. And then the characters will truly lead me and in many cases frustrate me and shock me, but like lead me through the rest of the structure. Let's move on towards towards the Toy Story. And I read uh, an interview with you, and you mentioned that uh, you found consciousness, subtext, and uh, reading their minds and feelings. And this was about an inanimate object, a lamp. 
And I'm not sure exactly what the context was, but it, it had to do with your belief in being able to write something like Toy Story. Could you help me out with that, Alec? Yeah, you know, I don't know if, it, if this is what it refers to, but, you know, when... So I, I, I worked for over a quarter century with uh, a, a co-writer, a collaborator, uh, you know, Joel Cohen. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I met Joel out in LA when I had moved out there and uh, we decided to try writing one script together. We had both been in other partnerships and had done writing alone and, and we uh, and, and we specifically said we're not going to become partners. And, uh, and we wrote one script that became the movie Ultimately Money Talks. And then we wrote a second script and that was a script called The Wooden Policeman. Uh, it was a live action script, uh, R-rated about kids and guns, and it had a character Buzz and a character Woody. And that's the script that was read by Disney and uh, Animation and by Pixar at the time, by John Lasseter, and that got us the opportunity. When we sat down with John and when we sat down uh, with Disney, there was a lot of conversations about trying to see the world from the point of view of the characters that we were writing about, in, in this case, toys. And a simple question like, when is a toy happy? Uh, is a very profound philosophical question when you really start to dig into it. You know, is a toy happy when it's being played with? Is a toy happy when it's valued and, and clean? Is a toy happy when it's sitting, in the case of Toy Story, on the bed of the boy that is that he's the toy of? Uh, or is a toy happy when he's still in the box? Or you know, And there's no right or wrong answer. But it it was an exercise, and John would do this with a glass of water. When when is a glass of water? What does a glass of water feel like? What, you know, what when is a glass of water happy? Is a glass happy when it's filled with water? Is it happy when it's being uh, you know emptied of water? Is it sad when it's empty? It just was a way to kind of apply human empathy and emotions to inanimate objects and start to see the world from their point of view. And I, I think that I, I don't know if that's what you're referring to, but that's kind of like. Yeah. That was the profound thing with Toy Story. It was like just figuring that out and just figuring out how can we tell a story that's relatable and and then, you know, what what is the value system and, and the philosophical uh, existential belief system of, of a toy? Mm -hmm. It's interesting uh, reading about uh, Toy Story, uh, a couple of deep dives on it. And uh, some of these writers are actually saying there's aspects. I'd like to get your take on it. There's a. Uh, aspects on spirituality in it. There's this, uh, you know, old tech versus new tech. There's friendship. There's a, a lot of subtext. Coping, um, there's, there's a lot to the story beyond just about toys and a kid. There is really a lot of subtext in there about our culture and friendship and, and coping and all of that kind of stuff. Could you explain yeah, that well, stuff, well, Alec? Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll go back to Joel. So like when Joel and I got started working together, uh, and, and our partnership went 25 years, you know, like we had a full and very satisfying writing career together. Uh, one of the conversations that we had, one of the core first conversations is how do you survive as a screenwriter in Hollywood? And we did a little bit of an analysis of the entire system. And we thought, you know, they always make buddy movies. They, you know, going back to the 20s, going back to Gunga Din and maybe the 30s, they always make buddy movies decade for decade, studio for studio. So we said, we're going to become experts in, in buddy storytelling. And, uh, and that's what we set out to do with, with our, with our speculative work. And that's kind of what toy story is, uh, in, in, in spades. But when you, when you actually dive into buddy storytelling, you can go back to the epic of Gilgamesh 
which is you know thousands of years old, found on tablets in ancient Samaria, and that's a buddy story. And it's a story that basically, you know, ultimately, I think it'd be fair to say, uh, is simplified to like, we're better together than apart. We're better when we, uh, you know, figure out commonality and work towards a goal together than we are when we try and separate. And so I would I would say quite early on, uh, you know, it was a very deep conversation what are stories why does why do stories matter so much and and over the period of time now i think that there really are only two kinds of stories there's stories about connection or stories about isolation so when you get to like a thing like toy story yeah two toys one boy very simple and yet when you start seeing the world from a toy's point of view and the toys have feelings and the toys become um uh human in their emotions uh, and, and very important. And it was a scene that we kind of ripped off from Star Wars. Uh, but like that first scene in the first act where, where Sid blows up the toys in the neighboring, uh, you know, property, uh, you know, not seen on screen, but seen from the point of view of the toys in Andy's room. Um, it establishes the horror and the stakes of what it what's what it is the worst outcome for a toy. It's to be with a kid that blows you up. In, in this world. And how is that not like the same conversation about God? How is that not the same conversation about humanity, about about why we are here and what our purpose is and what is the biggest fear? Uh, you know, what destruction, what what ending, what evil awaits us if if we don't somehow, uh, you know, uh, stay on the right path. And, um, and so, yeah, that's a pretty deep conversation, even though it's a kid's movie. Uh, I, I also think that, and, and this is the nature, I believe, of a lot of things, but definitely in the case of Pixar and the case of, of, of that movie, um, uh, you know, this wasn't, it wasn't an attempt to make a movie for children. It was an attempt to make a movie that, uh, you know, Buzz and Woody, uh, Jeff Katzenberg was, was running Disney Animation at the time, and, and he was very specific. Give them adult problems. They're adults. The first draft of Toy Story was kind of, it had curse. It was an R-rated draft. It had cursing mm -hmm. in it. It had uh, uh, violence in it. Uh, Buzz, when he found out he was a toy, tried to kill himself. Woody, we had a whole montage where, uh, you know, he, uh, the, the, his personal journey of abandonment over a period of 30 or 40 years, uh, you know, where he was uh, originally going to, uh, was a ventriloquist dummy and originally was going to be on the Ed Sullivan show with his uh, ventriloquist, but it was the day the Beatles uh, came on and the ventriloquist got bumped and went out on a bender and left Woody in the back of the cab and and the cabbie took him home to his kid and, you know, his kid loved him and 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 kept him until he ended up at Woodstock in a mud bog. And then somebody else took him and he ended up on Studio 54's floor. And we actually wrote all this stuff into the first draft as a way of just dealing with what does it feel like to be abandoned? And, and it, it predates Forrest Gump in the in the in the you know chronology of movies, but it was very Forrest Gump. And and so like. We were dealing with those feelings, um, you know, and, and I do think that the philosophies uh, you know, are almost the veneer that gets put on, like the fun stuff, the jokes and the visual stuff that people can kind of walk away and remember. That's the last stuff because you've gotten all the bigger piping all connected right. Let's expand this. So Toy Story became this hit. 
in terms of the process, how quickly did they realize that this is a franchise and you've got to get going on Toy Story 2, 3, 4? How, how did that all work out? Because I know there was other writers on Toy Story, yeah, the original well, well, also. How did the whole process work with franchises? And then you did uh, Garfield, and then there was another Garfield, and then you picked up uh, Evan Almighty, which is the second in a series. How does the whole franchise thing um, work for you or against you or get in the way or clear a path when you as a screenwriter? Yeah, all right. Well, I think there's two kind of separate things. One is, is that just acknowledging the industry uh, you know, I think that all of the studios and all the big financiers are ultimately in the branding industry and they're ultimately in the franchise industry. Uh, it mitigates their risk. It allows them to kind of like plot out their corporate strategies over years, if not decades. And in the case of like Buzz Lightyear, it becomes kind of the basis of, uh, it becomes a new Mickey Mouse. It becomes the, 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 the colors of Buzz Lightyear, you know, are present in the amusement parks. And so I think that it, it's just, pragmatic to say, well, that's their business. That's the business they're in. Uh, you don't have to be in that business, but if you want to go on a certain ride, acknowledge that. Um, as far as the other aspect of, of the question, you know, and, and this is my point of view. This is my thing. I'm not going to say I'm right about this. I know that there are other people who have different opinions, but you know, movies are sausage making and the, the, the way that sausages get made, uh, nobody really wants to see, how they get made, they just want to taste the sausage. But the way Toy Story got made, you know, um, they had spent over a year or so trying to do this thing in house of of taking like the minutia and and uh, of a idea and turning it into a long form movie. And at some point, the animation executives were like, "You need to bring in writers. Like, you need writers. You're you're animators. You need writers." Um, and so that's how Joel and I got the opportunity uh, for the first one. Um, having said that, um, it, you know, we were very clear. We were, you know, I was 27 or 8 when I got that opportunity. Joel's a little bit older. But, you know, we didn't really have a lot of leverage in the negotiation. And, and without getting into the weeds too much, um, you know, animation, especially feature animation at that time, was not covered by the Writers Guild. Writers, you do not have... Uh, the rights that you would have in in, in live action uh, storytelling, you sign those away with the contract. Uh, you, you you sign away residual payments. You sign away uh, any equities, but you also sign away the ability to even uh, have basic rights on on screen credit. Um, there is a arbitration process, or there was an arbitration process in place, but it was an internal process and. Um, you know, when, when we finished, we wrote the first seven drafts of Toy Story. Uh, we, we get replaced by Joss Whedon, another brilliant guy. He kind of comes on. And if this was a live action thing, in my estimation, he might not have gotten credit because he didn't really substantially change the structure or the actual events in any scene. But he lifted up, in my opinion, a lot of the moment by moment storytelling. Uh, but having said that, we were the only, Joel, myself, and then Josh were the only actual writers. The other names on Toy Story were all the animators, and they were given screenwriting credit because they're very proprietary, and there was really no process to adjudicate that. So you end up with a lot of names on the script, which um, you know is, is probably not how it would work if it was live action, but that's how it worked back then. I can tell you, and, and this is like one of those little stories of how Hollywood really works. Please. When, when, when it's time, Joel and I are given 
here's the credits. And, and in the credits, we were the first writers and they, they list us last and they list, you know, Pete Doctor and Andy Stanton and Joe Ramp and, and John Lasseter, John, also the director, and then list Joss. And we're brought into a windowless office. A lawyer sits us down saying, here's what we think the credits are going should be. You do have a right to have an arbitration, but, and this is a dead on quote. He says, but if you do, it's going to get bloody. I'll leave you two to think about it. And he leaves us, he leaves us, he leaves us in a room with all of the scripts, like with our scripts and then the subsequent scripts. And we're, we have a chance to look at it all. We're like, it's, you know, I'm not going to curse, but it's like, it's our movie. This is, this is our work. <laughs> and then Joel and I have this like real tough conversation about what do we do? Do, do we fight for what we know is right? Or do we kind of go on the ride? And then we quickly said, well, we're not getting any more money out of them, no matter what the credits say. And, and this is again, Joel's wisdom. He's like, they're going back up to San Francisco. Everybody in the industry will know we did the actual work. We need this for our career. We can't afford to not be on this ride. So we accepted the credits. Um, in the original contract, they had the right, and we had the right where they had to come to us to do the sequel, but it was to, for the same pay scale and with the same deal. And the, and the sequel originally was gonna be straight to video. So when they came to us, we were like, well, do we wanna do a straight to video, not get paid, be mistreated, and, or do we wanna go accept all of the opportunities that the rest of the industry is starting to offer us, get paid a lot more money, and, and have a career and not have to deal with the same dynamic. And so we chose to kind of probably erroneously ultimately, but like to back away from that franchise. Having done that though, we very quickly realized it's a franchise industry. Um, you know, you mentioned Evan Almighty. That's another one that, you know, not for this program, but like we wrote a, we pitched and sold a modern day Noah's Ark to Tom Hanks's company before Bruce Almighty was even made. Um, Tom Hanks uh, and Tom Shadiak were talking about doing a movie together after Bruce Almighty. Jim Carrey didn't want to make a sequel and they wanted to make a sequel. And then here's uh, Steve Carell coming up and they're like, well, we're going to make Evan Almighty. And they ultimately used our script, uh, Tom Shadiak did not Tom Hanks, as the prototype and the template to uh, make Evan Almighty, even though it predated Bruce Almighty, and they didn't want to acknowledge our previous work. We had to like go to the Writers Guild with all our contracts and all the scripts just to be accepted into that conversation. So, you know, it's, it's really not, the, the industry really is not, uh, uh, it's not a tender place. You know? mm -hmm. So what are some uh, great story? What are some of the rules of engagement that aspiring screenwriters, talented screenwriters need to know to get into the business? Because many times they have uh, creatives and having my my experience in advertising, uh, everybody's writing a screenplay. And a lot of times creatives don't want to get into the they don't want to beat their chest. They don't want to market themselves. They don't want to learn about how different industries work. I know the publishing industry. You have to know how to write a, a your query letter is as important as your manuscript. What yeah. are some of the rules of engagement that uh, aspiring writers need to know, Alec? Yeah, well, there's a lot of there's a lot of like uh, um, things that don't make sense, you know, like a lot of, uh, you, you know, because and, and my first job before I got any work as a writer 
was was working on a desk at uh, MGM UA, and even back back then in the um, mid to late eighties, uh, you know, studios and financiers won't accept uh, submissions uh, from writers. You know, they'll accept them from agents, they'll accept them from lawyers. They need to have a third party, a reputable third party, for them to accept them. And if something were to come in uninitiated. Even back then, there were these form letters that you would just kind of not open the envelope and send it back with a form letter because everybody's afraid of being sued. And so you don't want to say, I read your material and I'm and oh, that movie we ended up making is very similar. But no, I didn't take your material. So from a writer's point of view, you need representation. Uh, and, and how do you get representation? Because uh, most agents or managers won't really take on unproven uh, commodities because exactly. you know they they are their business is to sell and they want to take the path of least resistance because it's it's that's their business model and so you got to kind of play a, a who's on first a little bit initially I, I I tried to simplify it and Joel and I tried to simpl- simplify it with just be good at what you do and keep doing it and so we write one script let's write a second script let's write a third script. Don't stop writing. Don't stop the process. Learn your craft. And while that's going on, just get it out to as many people as possible. That first script we wrote, Money Talks, um, we both had agents, different agents at the time. We fired our agents because we thought this is the greatest script in the world. We got it to a third agent who was really hot and selling spec scripts. He said, I'm going to sell this thing for you. He didn't sell it. Then he wouldn't sign us as clients. And it took us five years to get Money Talks made. Um, and in that period of time, we actually found a set of producers who liked it and they didn't have any money, but they wanted a free option on it. And we said, okay, well, you can have a free option, but you got to get us an agent. And, and so we kind of got an agent. Uh, we ended up at ICM for a while. Um, so there's a lot of horse trading that goes on. What I would say is, is that it, by and large, if, if you're an emerging writer, if you're trying to get noticed, you know, understand that um, it's a content-driven business. It always has been, it always will be, and there's an insatiable need for content. But having said that, it's also a business filled with agendas and, and really uh, little kingdoms uh, of which there are gatekeepers. And, and really, uh, you, know, you gotta kind of you know, leave your ego at the door a little bit and just realize that your success as a writer, especially initially, is to be a pilot fish on a much bigger fish. And so it really behooves anyone to learn the agendas, learn who has the business, who has the deals, who has, you know, who is incentivized to be making bigger product and then be a problem solving for them. And again, just reverse engineering it. uh, You become that by having writing material and samples that show what you can do. And then, uh, you know, and then you play nice and you accept that like, you know, in success, there's a lot of things that don't make sense in the screenwriting game, but in success, you'll probably get fired and be replaced. That's that's good news. That's not bad news, because that means they're spending more money working towards production. And if you're the first writer, you have a better than good chance, especially if it was live action, of of having your name on the movie, having some equity in the movie, and ultimately it's the credits that are going to make your career. And so it's just really playing a long game, you know, and and understanding that with the exception of very few people, nobody's really um, bequeathed a career. So everybody just kind of hustles and 
finds the door that they can walk into and then hopefully, you know, uses that to get to the next door, to the next door, to the next door. And along the way, you do enough that you start to build a reputation and, and, and a body of work so that you become an entity. But it's, it's not my advice is you write if you want to be a writer. If you want to be a writer director, then you write and you direct something. Uh, but you just and, and then you do it again and then you do it again and you do it again while you're paying attention to the industry while you know you're probably going to get screwed over 50 million different ways that doesn't matter because in success you're going to get what you want okay guys guys radio your host robert manny special guest academy award nominee and annie award winner for toy story alec sokolow you were in uh, a lot of major films and uh, franchises but we haven't really gotten into you know, working with some of the uh, star caliber talent that you've worked with over the years. So let's take, for instance, uh, Money Talks. You worked with Brett Ratner and also Chris Tucker, Charlie Sheen. That must have been a trip. Uh, can you share some stories about your uh, experiences on set or otherwise in Hollywood? Yeah, you know, all right. So I can. Uh, they're, they're pretty boring from my point of view. I, I tended to not go to the set unless I was invited. Um, my attitude was, first of all, you know, the set's a working, a workplace. I've done my work and that for the director and for the actors and for everybody else, they're doing their work. And if I can be an asset to them, that's great. But if not, I'm just going to get in the way, um, in my opinion. So, um, I kind of would always tell the producers and the directors and, and the actors, like, if you want me there, I'm there. But if not, that's, that's cool. I don't have to be there. Secondly, on that front, to survive as a screenwriter, I realized um, I needed to write first drafts, and that's very time intensive. And the longer I stayed on a project, uh, the the more it hurt my ability to write first drafts. It actually hurt my bottom line. So once a movie was being made, I had already kind of like guaranteed my place in the conversation. And I, w I tended to manage my career where it was like, all right, it's time to be doing something else. Uh, having said that, you know, uh, there, there, I don't know. It's like, it, you know, Money Talks wasn't supposed to be a Brett Ratner movie. There was a, a commercial director named Steve Chase. He was supposed to make it. Um, he uh, he picked a fight with Chris Tucker and uh, was was let go. And Chris got to pick Brett. Uh, we were all, about four weeks out of production, so Brett came on. It was his first uh, feature film. And he used Steve's crew and Steve's boards and Steve's cameraman and, and everything. So Brett really uh, wasn't part of the, the development of Money Talks uh, on that level. But then he, he did have the relationship with, with Chris. Um, you know, as far as Charlie, uh, you know, I could just tell you, and, and, and this is just the nature of it, is uh, uh, Monday morning, every Monday morning we were in production. Uh, you know, Charlie's dad uh, would call up the producer just to make sure that that his son showed up to work. And, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, so he was kind of living the life even back then. Yeah. I, I tended and, and for better or worse, I tended to kind of put blinders on and say, look, my job in this big process, this big sausage making process is to write, is to is to create the structure is to get the things on the page that can be interpreted and then to be available when needed. And so um, there have been movies that I've been on the set. Uh, you know, Roland Joffe was a director who really enjoyed having uh, Joel and I, and I around. Uh, and, and we and so we showed up for Goodbye Lover a lot. Um, you know, as far as actors, I find the really good actors 
uh, they may want to ask a question or two, but they're going through their own process and, and they, they don't really want to be told what to do, <laughs> you know, like they just want to like interpret it. And if they have a question, maybe you could be there and, and help out in that way. But I, I, I truly saw it like my work was done when everybody else's work is beginning. And it, it, I, w I certainly wouldn't want somebody looking over my shoulder when I was working. So I, I, I tended to stay away. Just a couple more questions because we're getting tight on time, but I'm loving this conversation, Alex. Thank you so much. Um, sex trafficking in, in Hollywood. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about what drew you to that very serious subject and what do you think's going on? Yeah, sure. So, you know, uh, through actually my, my, my ex-wife uh, met somebody and introduced me to a, a documentary, Mary Mazio. Mary uh, lives and works out of Boston and, and she's just a... a a superstar of a, of a person and a, and a documentarian. She's an Olympic rower in 1992, was on Team USA, uh, became a lawyer and then became a documentarian. And she, and she only wants to make documentaries about social causes. And so when, when I met her, we started talking, uh, you know, it, it was really like, if I could be helpful again, if I could be helpful, I would love to be. And she, she got into the, the I am Jane Doe subject matter, the, the idea uh, that, you know, at that time and, and even now uh, that so many uh, sex trafficked, uh, mostly young girls, mostly ages 12 to 15 years old is when they're pulled into it, are, are sold and advertised on websites. And because of um, Section 230 of the uh, Communications Decency Act, uh, the websites have um, uh, protection against any uh, le legal uh, issues with content that they post. So Backpage.com was a very big uh, bad actor in this world and uh, was posting, you know, using emojis and using whatever else. Um, these ads, uh, you know, basically it's prostitution, but it's not because these kids, they're, they're not willingly doing it. And and um, and so we, Mary, you know, it brought me into this conversation. And the more I was in the conversation, it's very similar in some strange way. There's there is a dot that gets connected with the the, the fictional writing I'm doing. It's kids, and it's protecting kids, and realizing that you know nobody grows up wanting to be sex trafficked, and these are kids that that really need the protection of our uh, of of the grownups, and these are kids that need the protection of society. And because of the vagaries of our society. Not only are they not protected, but they're actually sold and resold and resold. And so that story really tells the story of survivors, kids that kind of somehow were pulled out of that and then with their parents somehow became activists to try and shut down Backpage.com and change the law. And uh, it doesn't take much to get really passionate about wanting to be part of that conversation. Uh, the cool thing, though, and this is still available, the documentary is on Netflix. I am Jane Doe, uh, definitely worth the watch even now. It's about four or five years old, four, maybe three or four years old. But, but then we, we made a, a nine-minute animation called I Am Little Red that's kind of a PSA uh, to be used uh, with a curriculum to help educate kids on how not to be pulled into that world. Uh, and so I got to use my, uh, my skill set as a writer in animation, uh, and you know, I co-directed that, co-wrote it, and I co-wrote it with Mary and with 12 survivors, these kids that had been in that life. And now we get to tell their story a little bit, but in a safe way to have a conversation. How do you not, I mean, what's the point of doing anything if you can't do something positive 
and use your skill set to hopefully better somebody else's situation. So that's really what that was about for me. Okay. Well, listen, you have been a fantastic guest. I have another whole page of questions, so maybe we can we maybe we continue to do a part two at some point. I would love absolutely, that. Absolutely, absolutely. And and that's the problem when you ask a writer a question, you're going to get a novel back as an answer, man. Um, so tell our listeners where they can uh, find out more about you, uh, whatever you want to share. I know you do an NPR show. I'm not sure if you're still doing that, but you have an NPR show. Yeah, yeah. So and, so, and also teaching. Yeah, so um, NPR show, WLIW 88.3 FM. It's NP it's uh, Long Island's only NPR station. Uh, we I do a show with actually somebody I went to high school with called Sundays on the East End. It's a one-hour show. Uh, it airs uh, 4 p.m. every Sunday. Um, and uh, that's, that's interesting. But I don't have a lot of social media. Um, I do teach. I've taught at universities. I'm not currently doing that. Um, you know, I, I just focus on work. So, you know, my, my latest and, and, and dearest project I think I've ever done is with my brother, who I know you've talked with and had on your show. We are adapting Walter Isaacson's biography of Ben Franklin, uh, and, and hopefully you're going to be turning into seven hours of, uh, of a limited series, um, which is something I care greatly about also. And hopefully in, uh, in a year or two years time, uh, it'll, it'll be out. Fantastic. Well, listen, Alec, I've thoroughly enjoyed this. I know our audience has learned a lot. I've learned a lot. And uh, you're a real beacon of uh, good, good writing, good work, and also the help you're doing with the uh, sex trafficking. I commend you for that. You're a real guys guy. Thank you so much, Alec Sokolow, for being on Guys Guys Radio. All right, man. Thank you for having me. It's Guy's Guy Radio. Okay, that was a fantastic and fascinating discussion with Oscar-nominated screenwriter Alec Sokolow about screenwriting, storytelling, the business of storytelling, the business of Hollywood, and so much more. I really enjoyed the conversation. I hope you did also and really gleaned some tidbits about what it's like to write professionally because I got to tell you, folks, it ain't easy. I have friends who are screenwriters. I have friends who are published authors. I'm a published author. You know, it's good luck trying to earn a living writing, but it can be done. But it's it's not like a corporate job or anything else. It's you're really putting yourself out there. You're becoming extremely vulnerable. You're expressing what's in your heart. And there is a system of storytelling. There is a template, a storytelling template handed down all the way from Aristotle. And usually it boils down to what does the main character want and why can't he or she get it? And uh, if it's a well-crafted piece of work, whether it's film, TV, on the stage or whatever, you know, you're going to get the ending that you want, but not in the way that you expect. So Alec Sokolow visits us on Guys Guys Radio. Terrific interview. Okay, we're here every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Pacific time on KCAA in Southern California, 102.3, 106.5 FM, 1050 AM. The pod drops every Thursday. The replay of the broadcast posts every Sunday at 6 p.m. on KCAA, but you can catch the podcast wherever you live, whenever you want. Also, we've recently launched a new YouTube channel. We're calling it Guys Guys TV. 
but just go to YouTube and put in my name, Robert Manny, and you'll find it. And what we're doing is we're taking the shows and we're putting them on YouTube. And we're starting with the best of the best, and then we're just filling them in. And uh, going forward, we'll put probably every show on there uh, from this point on. And we went back and we grabbed some of the top ones over the past year or so, and there'll be lots, lots more. So Guys, Guys TV on YouTube. On my website, uh, robertmanny.com, there's over 350 blog posts, everything about life, love, the pursuit of happiness, a lot of relationship-driven content. And you can also download three free chapters of my novel, which is the source material for everything Guy's Guy. It's called The Guy's Guy's Guide to Love. And yes, it is a novel, and it's a chunky novel. It's not like one of these 150-page dime store novels. It's a 350-page book. It's a real story, and it's about two men who live in New York City, and they're in their prime, and they're competing against each other, and for love, sex, power, money. There's some very strong female characters in it, and there's some battles that go on, and there's some treachery and backstabbing and redemption, and it all takes place in a world that features that stuff, and that is the world of Madison Avenue advertising in New York City. Although that business has changed so much, you wouldn't even recognize it now to where it was 25 years ago. So I want to thank my audience. I want to thank my guests. And I just want to thank everybody who supports the show and supports the work we're doing is really to help you think, help you feel, and help you take action where you can and kind of look beyond that fence in your backyard to say, what else is out there? And this is a time... This is the perfect time to do that because there's so much going on. There's so much change. There's so many opinions out there that it is a perfect time to look inside and say, what, what really matters in this life? Who am I? What, what, do I know who I am? Do I know what I am? Do I know how I serve? And if you can answer those questions, you're a step ahead of most other people because it's so often in this life that we get on that treadmill, that hamster wheel, and then before you know it, we've got gray hair and we're saying, wow, my prime is over. But you know what? You can always get started. It doesn't matter if you're 27 or 57. Today is a new day. Every minute counts. Make the most of it. Guys, Guys Radio, I'll see you next week. Thank you so much. And as I always like to say, guys, guys, finish first.